program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Uh, thank you for that introduction and thank you um, to Dan and the team at the Lunchtime Lectures for inviting me here today to talk about one of my passions, which is robots and um, <laughs> somebody else's passion too. Uh, so uh, I don't normally talk without notes, so I'm going to do my best to try and um, uh, describe what my research is about. Uh, and Thing and if something's not clear, we can talk about it afterwards, or you can contact me in the Department of Anthropology. So first of all, I chose this image very deliberately. I'm going to tell you more about it um, when we uh, go through the talk. But um, you can see this kind of metallic object here, RUR, emblazoned across the chest, and um, a worker kneeling down in, in front of it. And someone has quite carefully placed the hand on the head of this, uh, this worker. And so, you know, we, we kind of, for some reason, have these psychic associations, if you like, between robots and destruction and uh, the end of the world and things. And so what I'm hoping to do in this talk is talk about um, some of the, the backdrop to that. Why do, why do we think about robots in that way? but also begin to think about, well, what's actually going on in robotics and, and do we need to worry about them uh, taking over the world? So um, this, is, uh, this is a kind of object that you're probably all familiar with when you, when you hear the term robot, but I'm going to show you the very, very first robots. These were the very first robots. Uh, they were characters in a play in the 1920s called Rossum's Universal Robots. And the, uh, the play was written by a Czech writer called Karol Čapák. And basically, um, these robots, uh, you know, people tend to think of robots as kind of cute, cuddly toys or, you know, Hollywood depictions kind of devoid of politics. But the first robots were actually created and imagined in a time of absolute political turmoil. You just had the First World War. Um, you know, finished, that had a devastating impact uh, across Europe. And um, so pe people, were kind of, and people were kind of reflecting on what does it mean to be human, what makes us human, those kind of questions. And this kind of context is what inspired Chapak to kind of uh, write this play. And um, interestingly, these robots being human, uh, they are actually in the play assembled on a production line, a bit like uh, the Ford manufacturing uh, production line. So even though they are human, they are assembled, and these robots are designed to labor, and that is their uh, primary purpose in society. So um, then what happens when uh, Carol Chapak writes this play, and it starts to be reproduced in uh, Paris, London, um, and New York. Um, uh, other artists start to take this robot image and they start to reproduce it in their own particular ways. And they start to, interestingly, turn this robot character into a machine. And um, I love the fact that this robot's called Eric. You know, uh, we tend to think of Cybertron or, uh, you know, kind of funky names for robots, but this one was just called Eric. And uh, it was. Um, made by uh, Captain Richards and Refnell. And as you can see, it's kind of, uh, this robot was just a simple mechanical object. Uh, it could stand up, it could move its arm up and down. So very simplified um, 
you know, kind of uh, movements. But, you know, you can see, I mean, it looks incredible. I think it looks pretty incredible myself. So we have this kind of, uh, this robot becoming machine-like, which is starting to distance itself more and more and more from this kind of human character that was in the first play. Um, so what kind of um, made the robot turn into a machine? Well, we've got to remember, around the return of the century, particularly in the 1920s and 20s, there was an obsession with machinery and production and this, this idea that through machines we could be delivered to these new societies. Um, you know, so you had a competition between the left in, in the Soviet Union and in parts of Europe arguing that we could use machinery and technology to kind of uh, reduce people's labor time so that they could go and be free to look at art and literature and, and do whatever they please. And, um, and then in, the, uh, in America, which was the heart of capitalism, at that well, there's lots of capitalist economies, but it was certainly creating new models of production. You had the Ford production line being developed. Um, and so in both left and right wing philosophies at the time, there was this definite emphasis on production and this idea that through ma the, the machine we could like deliver to this new society. And in, in, as well as that, artists themselves became fascinated uh, with the machine. So um, we have, uh, you know, modern times, the parody of the modern production system by Charlie Chaplin. In the middle, we have this um, picture here, which is from Metropolis, which is basically a big machine with people working at machines. And when they die, they're thrown into a machine that consumes them, and the process starts all over again. So there's this kind of idea as well that as well as all this t new technology that was liberating us all, it was also dehumanizers, turning us into things. Um, and I mean, the, uh, the picture on the right is just one example of this, but every aspect of life um, um, was basically reimagined in machine form. Buildings were imagined as machines, cities as machines, the body as a machine. Uh, everything was kind of, the, the impact of machine modernism was extremely powerful. And I suppose in a way, a machine modernism in, in different forms still exists today. So, this like, this absolute, you know, the fact that then this robot becomes a, the, the robot becomes a machine, absolutely horrified its creator, Carol Chapak. He says, and he wrote this in third person for some reason, it is with horror, frankly, that he rejects all responsibility for the idea that metal contraptions could ever replace human beings, and that by means of wires they could awaken something like life, love, and rebellion. He would deem this dark prospect to be either an overestimation of machines or a grave offense against life. You know, so a bit like the character in Frankenstein, um, you know, Frankenstein creates his monster and he kind of loses control of his monster. Carol Chapak was absolutely horrified that he's a, his kind of robot was being turned into a machine and, um, and the machine basically started to dominate the imagery of a robot. So I don't know if anyone, I'm sure you all have kind of had an idea of a robot being a machine <coughs> uh, when you came in. So let's have a look at the uh, definitions of a robot. Uh, these are just a few. They're quite vague, actually. Uh, robot is taken from the Slavic word robota, which means to work extra, drudgery, slave, uh, 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 extra work. And, um, but it also is a word for work in uh, Slavic languages um, with no negative connotations. But the specific meaning that uh, Chapak um, got, 
got from the term was, uh, was related to drudgery. Uh, obviously, there are, because science now kind of um, reproduces uh, robots, we have a kind of more mechanical, uh, scientific, uh, technological definition. And then uh, also we have a person definition about someone who themselves seem to be uh, lacking in original thought. You know, if we want to like uh, criticize someone, we call them a robot. Uh, so we can uh, we we think about robots in relation to people and things, and um, and I think we we still carry that kind of imagination with us today. So. Uh, Another exciting thing about this talk is it's the 50th anniversary of the first use of industrial robots. And this was it. It's, um, it's a robot arm. I mean, if you go into some manufacturing companies, uh, not in the UK, unfortunately, but overseas, you'll see lots of robots, particularly in the car industry. And they tend to perform very like precise and um, uh, what's routine functions. Um, if, for example, uh, the robots are all precisely in place and the, the object that they're engaging with also has to be precisely in the same place. And if either of them are out of sync for any reason, then that there are problems. But these robots are very effective. I mean, Japan is, uh, is kind of one of the highest um, users of robots per industrial worker. And just to say, the, uh, once again, the GM assembly line was a kind of uh, inspiration for this. And the, the creators got the idea from, from science fiction. So it just um, it shows that fiction has always been an important backdrop for thinking about uh, the technology of robots and artificial intelligence and those kind of themes. And uh, this is a character from 2001 Space Odyssey that everybody knows. And interestingly, when the writers, uh, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, were trying to think up this idea. They actually talked to scientists and asked them what the future would be like. You know, 90, in the 1960s, they went to them and they asked, what's the future going to be like in 2001? And they said, well, we're going to have these super advanced artificial intelligent machines like HAL. And um, I, was a, I was a bit concerned because the other day I heard about the supercomputer Watson. And I thought, oh my god, you know, maybe they're right. Uh, We've, we've, uh, we've arrived here. And then I started to notice a striking uh, comparison. So uh, we're going to talk a bit about Watson. And um, for those who might not know, Watson was on a, um, a show called Jeopardy. And it's created by IBM. And the, uh, the creators say that it can understand natural language. And therefore, it's, uh, it's kind of more super than our current supercomputers. Well, for so, 600. Bang, bang. His silver hammer came down upon her head. Watson. What is Maxwell's silver hammer? Yes. Literary character, APB, for 400. His victims include Charity Burbage, Mad-Eye Moody, and Severus Snape. He'd be easier to catch if you'd just name him. Brad. Who is Voldemort? Correct. Um, alternate meaning 600. Okay, if you want to... Uh watch more of that, you can look on YouTube. Um, but uh, Watson did eventually end up uh, winning that competition, which uh, uh, is heralded as this great breakthrough in, um, in artificial intelligence. And I'm not diminishing it. I mean, it is, a, it is an incre incredible machine. But um, some, some things about like how did Watson do it? Well, first of all, Watson received the questions in text form. Um, 
It cannot see or hear, so uh, it's, it cannot. It has to receive information and communicate it in a very specific way. Uh, responses were based on probability um, in terms of it had large databases of information and then it had to search through that database and come up with probable responses. Uh, the, the way that it kind of engaged with the, um, the podium was when, when it decided on an answer, it could like press a buzzer, obviously not the machine, but there was a, a sequence in place which allowed it to do that. And then it converted the text into a voice answer. Um, so I thought I would search just Google and look for these uh, Jeopardy answers myself. And um, I did this a week ago, and you can do this at home if you're, you've got nothing else better to do. Um, so <clears throat> I literally, Jeopardy works by you get the answer and you have to guess the question. So I literally uh, put in, just in Google, these three uh, questions. And the first two, I got exactly the same response as uh, uh, Watson did. And the third one, interestingly, I did get Hyde as the third um, uh, question. But because Watson, because Google works by searching for relevant information, now when you search for that phrase, you get the Watson machine. So if you see what I mean. But if you imagine that uh, within Watson's own database banks, it's not contaminated in that sense, like people can uh, skew the results in that kind of way. Um, so should we fare robots? And oh, I think I, I'm doing OK for time, so I'll slow down a bit. I was a bit worried there that I was going a bit too fast. So. We have uh, obviously the Terminator image of a, a robot taking over the world and um, wreaking havoc and destruction. Now, um, this, this kind of idea as well about this, this kind of character who destroys the world, you can find the origin of that idea back in the earlier play in Rossum's Universal Robots, so if anyone wants to have a read of it. And um, basically, it's set in a future society where robots do all of the human labor. And, um, and um, uh, the humans themselves become lazy and disaffected with life. And there's a particular formula that's developed for a robot. The robot then becomes more superior. And they become powerful because they've got uh, you know, physical strength. And they take over the world. So, we can find the roots of this story of kind of robot destruction back in the, in the 1920s. Um, <clears throat> now, interestingly, when I went to robotic labs and um, I, I got there, it was more like a robot crash than a robot lab. And I didn't really understand the significance of why robots are made in this way um, before. But actually, the, the roboticists themselves are so concerned sometimes about the way in which their uh, objects will be accepted in society that they've started recrafting them in particular ways. There's this whole kind of philosophy about how to design robots so that they don't frighten people. Uh, one of them is to, if you make them um, like cute, and a, and a bit adorable, then people aren't going to be frightened by them. That's one thing. Um, if you make them more childlike, then people will um, kind of interact with them like they're, they're small children. And, and that will mean you don't have to create very intelligent robots because uh, 
in my view, people start to do all the work when they interact with them. The other interesting thing about robot design is about whether something's machine-like or human-like. And um, I'm just going to give you two uh, robots to choose from, and I just want to see a, a raise of hands. So we have Casper the robot here on the, uh, up here. So that's a very human-like robot, and we have, uh, let's compare it with, um, I don't know, Mert's robot here. Right, who prefers Casper? Right. Okay, who, maybe you don't prefer any robot, who prefers Mertz? You like the Dalton. Um, well, there you go. So already, um, there's kind of judgments that we make about the way that we craft certain objects. And the more human-like they look, the more they tend to freak us out, basically. And the less human-like they look, the more kind of we warm to them. And I've seen this on time and time again, and I think there is um, some truth to this. It's the, in, in robotics, it's kind of called the uncanny valley. So it's this idea that certain objects, if, they're, if they look too human-like, but they don't behave human-like, they tend to frighten us. Um, and so the way that some um, roboticists overcome these issues is by uh, designing robots that look very machine-like. Another interesting thing I found in the United States when I did research there is that they try to make robots genderless and raceless. Um, so this is an, in, I didn't find this in the UK actually, but I did find it in, in America. Like they're very keen on their uh, robotic artifacts kind of being neutral in this respect. But interestingly, even though none of these robots have a gender, uh, who would say they, well, let me just, we'll go for a neutral one in the middle, Kismet here. Who, say, who thinks Kismet uh, looks like a girl? A, a few. A boy? More? Neither. Ah, about half and half, so they're obviously doing something right. Um, so I'm going to show you a, a bit of robot video here. Um, and... I guess you weren't expecting this when I was going to show you lots of robots, but you'll be very surprised. これまでと大きく考えるのを果たし、より人間に近い動きをします。ここはまず、また後ろから肩を触ると、ちょっとびっくりした感じで誰なのか確かめます。従来のロボットより可愛い人間に近い。そう、200個のセンサーなどがあり
And, and the way that they're trying to imagine the relationship between robot and person is more like parent and uh, child, carer and child. And, um, you know, anthropologically, I think this is very interesting, and it's uh, almost like developing our, extending our familial relations, if you like, to uh, non-human things. And I think that some of that um, uh, plays over and over again in the, in the way in which these robots are designed and the way roboticists uh, talk about them. So, you know, we have the kind of idea of the robot as destroyer. We have these, uh, these roboticists who are actually making these research platforms, trying to kind of negate those ideas. Um, but why did uh, Chapak's robots lead the way in uh, creating narratives of destruction? And as I said, you know, the robot and the, the play was written at a very kind of turbulent time. And so Chapak thought there was too much obsession on production at the time. That's why his robot is, about, is, is uh, related to the concept of labor. And that's why uh, Marx and Fordism are kind of relevant here. Um, because Chapak saw himself as outside those, um, those kind of philosophies. And he didn't want to have a society where they, there was, everyone was obsessed with production and this machine modernism of the time. So he wrote that um, he wanted to create this idea that when the robots attacked people, we could, be, uh, we could think, gosh, isn't it great to be human? Isn't it wonderful to be human? So he kind of had these uh, humanist leanings in that respect. Um, so has his goal come true to some extent? Well, um, I think... Uh, robots have always kind of had a place in fiction and even when they go into domains like science and technology labs and into industry the fictional aspect never escapes it it's always there it's ever present and therefore it's a kind of technology that's intimately bound up with uh, cultural concepts so um, for that reason uh, we now have robots engaged you know, technologists building robots that were only first imagined in fiction. Even the term roboticist is from a, a short story by uh, uh, Isaac Asimov. So even terms that we use in technology are kind of drawn from fiction. And one thing that I've learned in terms of my interactions with lots of different robots and people who make robots is that robots, uh, the making of robots show us how um, incredible we are as human beings. They really do. Um, something that we take for granted, like having a simple communication, is extremely complex to reproduce in a machine. And so maybe Chapak inadvertently is, um, you know, is showing us that it's quite uh, incredible to be a human being or a, 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 an animal. And um, Robots also show how distinctive our characteristics are. And so my recent research has been looking at an area of robotics called social robots. And my new research is looking at therapeutic robots. But interestingly, like um, even trying to develop a social robot is, is uh, marked by lots of problems. So I'm going to show you a social robot here. Do you really think so? Do you really think so? <laughs> Do you really think so? 
Right. So um, this robot is what was called the first sociable robot. It's called Kismet. It was made by researchers at MIT. And as you can see, the kind of the idea is that if you have a robot and you get it to express certain um, uh, facial expressions, then it can communicate a lot of emotion. There's no denying that when we look at that robot, we think it's expressing lots of emotion. Um, however, um, well, I think there are certain layers of emotion. There's a very simple a kind of a simpler way to understanding emotion in terms of behavior, in terms of when I'm surprised, my eyebrows are curved, you know, my nose goes up slightly, and, you know, my eyes widen. But, so a lot of these social robots and designing sociable machines, they use these kind of ideas when they're designing them. They think, well, what happens when a person looks surprised? What happens to their face? Maybe we can get the machine to uh, combine those uh, expressions and then you know we've got a robot demonstrating surprise and the same with happiness and the same with joy and all those other things well they don't do joy but uh, this, the emotions like sadness happiness disgust uh, surprise are kind of is the usual emotional range but um, I actually think social robots are and humanoid robots are a bit of a dead end in robotics and the reason why is not that I'm particularly against the idea of a humanoid robot or, you know, I can't, um, you know, engage with an, artifici an artificially intelligent uh, entity, but I think it's more, they just don't work. If you go to robotic labs, the robots break down, they're too complex, the systems just don't work. And people say, well, isn't this just because of where we are in the technology? Well, I, th I think, um, I don't just think it's a question about the technology. I think reproducing another person, another human being, should I say, uh, the body and uh, the person in a machine form is just an impossible task. Um, so I, I, I don't think the future is in humanoid robots, and I certainly don't think it's in social robots. But that's, I do think it's in other areas, and these are certain areas that I would like to see um, uh, developing obviously not military robots but you know the these areas have applications then we have non-humanoid domestic robots like the rumba I think that's um, that's a good application for a robot uh, the rumba costs about 400 pounds which is why I haven't bought one and it doesn't do stairs so you'd have to buy a robot and a hoover if you wanted to do the whole house unfortunately but maybe they'll get around that um, uh, educational robots. I do a lot of outreach work and children absolutely love robots. So if anyone does outreach work and you're a scientist, children really do um, get inspired by robots. So that's certainly an area I'd like to see developed. Therapeutic robots. Well, my, my current research project is looking at um, the use of robots as potential aids to help uh, children with autism spectrum conditions. And uh, I'll just like, give you a, an idea of, of what the research is about. It's not about encouraging a child to interact with a robot, but just by having a robot in a room seems to encourage an interaction between child and other participant. So the robot seems to act as a mediator um, in this respect. And I think that's a very interesting area of research where uh, robotics 
uh, could develop. But the research on this is all very new at the minute, so nobody really knows if the robot is effective or not. Um, medical robots, obviously, you know, another area already in, in, in different kind of research institutes, you're, you're seeing the use of medical robots. And space robots, I mean, I was kind of having a conversation the other day with a friend and we, we thought that on the surface of Mars it's probably full of dead robots who have, uh, you know, just run out of steam and, uh, but there's still a, a good way to kind of explore other worlds, other, uh, other um, entities out there. So. These are areas, I think, in robotics, and I'm certainly taking, I'd like to take my research in the direction of, of these different types of areas. So um, I'm going to end it there, but I'm going to show you one last video. And, um, you know, the, the social robot has, um, people are imagining that in the future we're going to develop these partnerships with machines and uh, and they could be like companions, for example, for communities like the elderly community who have often, like, say, one of their biggest problems is loneliness. Um, so there are some people out there who kind of want to kind of develop technologies to be companion, uh, companion species for different groups in society. Now, we don't have enough time to go into the ins and outs of all that, um, but uh, apart from the video that we often see about robots, and I, um, I'm sure there are some scientists here, but, but I'm sure they will agree that when you see video robots working, it's often robots that have been videotaped a number of times, and they've finally got done what you wanted them to do. So um, whenever you see a, of course, be uh, surprised and enjoy it, but when you see robot video, I would say always be a bit cautious because it probably took hundreds of hours to get to that stage. So this is a fantastic robot. It's one of my favorite robots called Mertz. And the reason why I like this one is because the researcher, right, decided not to do this, decided not to just put it, you know, videotape it, put the video on the web and like say how great robots were. She actually put her robot in a public space in, uh, at MIT and she let people interact with it. And, um, and I think, I think this interaction between robot and the, and the people just shows, well, it's quite funny, but it, it's, it just shows that actually it's not so easy just to create a few facial expressions to engage people in a social interaction. So I'm going to end on there and just show you. Hello, what is your name? Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> This one. I wanted to make it larger. But... Hello, what is your name? <laughs> my name is Lucien, my friend. Uh, what is your yours? name? Is Genevo. Is what? Yes, hello. <laughs> no, Gucci. Say yes, hello. Please. <laughs> no. Please look at my face. Huh? He's speaking in French. Are you saying yes, hello? No. Hello, what is your name? Good ah. <laughs> Your name is <laughs> Yes, hello. <laughs> no, it's Marta. I can just see you. I'm here. Hello. Look at my face. What? What did you say? Please face me directly. What? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah, answer correctly. Yeah. Hello, what is your name? Martha. And yours? <laughs> you move too much. Can you see me now? Are you seeing me now? What? You are too far away. No, I'm not far away. What do you want? <laughs> no, don't get mad. Let's go and talk. <laughs> ah, okay, oh, I don't words. understand any language, but I, I am trying to learn and repeat simple words you say. I'm closer, please. Oh, you cannot you communicate. Closer, please. Am I close enough? You are too far away. I think you have to get Okay, well, um, just on that, it could have gone on forever, but you can see how much people worked hard to have an interaction with that robot. And um, I think it's great that the researcher like, put her work out there, put it in a public space, and let people just interact with it. And I think this probably gives us the best, um, this, the most natural and best account of what it's like to interact with a social robot. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Richardson. It's a really uh, fantastic subject to, to explore today. We have about three or four minutes for, for questions. Uh, if anyone would like to, to pose a question, we've got two microphones on either side of the room. And we'll, we'll, if you could just hold off till you start speaking, until the microphone gets to you. Do we have a question? We've got one here. Uh, this question isn't very well formulated, but uh, I, I, I think it's of interest that the idea of a humanoid robot was like sort of invented first a, a long, 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 a long time before there was any possibility of actually having a humanoid robot. And you, you mentioned the feeling of disgust that we have at an attempt to make a robot humanoid. I mean, that last video was very humorous and comical. But uh, earlier on, you mentioned that there is a sort of feeling of disgust if you try to make a, a robot humanoid. And I, I think there's probably something deep going on there. Uh, I'm inclined to think we, we, that a law should be passed saying that you shouldn't be allowed to make robots humanoid. And may, maybe, maybe we, we should just talk about computerized machines or in, interactive machines or something of that nature. Um, thanks for your question. I I don't think there should be laws passed. I mean, technologists should be able to make whatever they like. Uh, and what, what I was kind of saying was that when you build a robot, the more human-like you make it, the more um, it, it kind of provokes anxiety in us. So actually, if you created a humanoid that looked very machine-like, people will accept it a little bit more. But then that raises questions about whether you can build a humanoid whether you should build a humanoid, whether resources should go in that area in robotics. And interestingly, um, the West is always contra contrasted with um, like Japanese societies, and we're told that Japanese people love robots. And uh, I have, have a Japanese informant who tells me uh, not every household in Japan has a robot. And, uh, and, and recently, they've started 
companies have started moving away from humanoids and towards thinking about precisely those things, you know, other type of intelligent agents that could help um, disabled communities, the elderly, uh, or just, you know, enrich our lives in different ways. And I think there's definitely a move away from the humanoid. It was kind of the 10 years, 2000, 2010. I mean, there are still some humanoids around, but I'm, I think we're coming to the end of that now. Perhaps we could touch a bit more on uh, one aspect that uh, robots of the future will have. First of all, we're talking about very primitive machines there. Uh, and your first leader was military robots. Uh, there will be a lot of spin-offs of those. One of the things they will do is communicate with each other in, in networks in a way that we as humans can't. We're limited by our language. We're limited, limited by the speeds of our brains. Uh, we, we are talking potentially about some quite ominous technology, um, whether the front end is humanoid or whatever form it takes, um, I think the important thing to remember is that uh, a network of uh, robots of whatever kind, intelligent robots, would have an amazing form of communication that we can't even envisage. And I, I think there's a caveat there. Um, to talk about robots taking over the world in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the way that science fiction uh, portrays it is, is probably not what's going to happen, but what could well happen is that they will... Um, computers have already made us redundant. The pocket calculator made, made, made people forget how to, to do simple calculations in their heads as it was a start. Um, I can see a point where if we're painting a science fiction, the 1984 caveat, shall we say, of robots is don't let them take over. And we should remember that because there is, there is that real potential if we're not careful. So you think they might take over? <laughs> yes, absolutely. See, I, I mean, I, I think um, what, artifi what artificial intelligence actually tells us is that uh, machines are very good at certain, doing certain kinds of things. They're very good at doing logical things, um, mathematical things, um, things that require searching, search and find, sorting through lots of information. Uh, I mean, you know, um, those kind of things. But when it comes to... <coughs> well, actually, that's... Uh, the mathematics of defining this room so you could have a robot navigate the space is extremely complex, and I don't think you could. And even if you could put all the parameters into this room, all that someone has to do is put a chair there, and that's it. Your kind of calculations... Uh, um, you know, don't, aren't effective anymore. So I think, I'm not saying there aren't great areas of research. I mean, it's wonderful uh, that uh, some of these interesting developments and obviously in technology, but, you know, I, I do think it shows how distinct, distinctive we are as human beings. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk. Music